0: Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, mental health, and wellness, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from your clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. This podcast episode is brought to you by UHSM HealthShare, a unique healthcare membership on a mission to create holistic wellness for the mind, body, and spirit. I'm honored to partner with UHSM and its community of faithful members. Together, we plan to create more awareness and programs around mental health and the role it plays in our overall balanced health. If you or someone you know is frustrated with their current health care, I encourage you to inquire about membership options at www.uhsm.com or call 1-800-900-8476.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. So glad that you've decided to spend your time here with us today. Um, today we're talking about understanding schizophrenia. And I'm really excited because we have a returning guest, Dr. David Pewter. He was on um, last time. We were talking about mental health from a clinical perspective. And now he's joining us to talk about the different dynamics of understanding schizophrenia. So hi, David. So great to have you back.
2: Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this important topic. Yeah. That affects about 1% of the population.
1: I know, yeah. And, um, you know, I had a, a lot of questions just asking more about this. And surprisingly, we hadn't talked about this on the podcast yet. So I thought, now's a good time. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar with you, I know that you were on before. But if you could just give just a brief um, background around who you are and what led to the work that you're doing today.
2: Yeah, so I'm a full-time psychiatrist, uh, therapist. I see patients, you know, five days a week, eight in the morning till five at night. I'm in Florida. I have a license in Texas and in um, California as well, but I'm mostly, you know, in Florida at this point. And I, you know, I worked at a university for a number of years and then kind of set up a private practice. And so I see the full gauntlet of, you know, high performing executives to, you know, stuck in your house for multiple years. And the parents are like, I have no idea what to do with my, with my son or my daughter. Who's, you know, not talking to us. They think we're racist. They, uh, they don't talk to friends anymore. You know, there's a kid who usually is in their twenties or a girl maybe in their early 30s late 20s that's when this hits Um, and these patients are often you know very resistant to any treatment Um, they are actually as part of the diagnosis they have low insight into their situation but to the family they're like this is not my son or daughter anymore this person has no insight into um, how dysfunctional their life has become. You know, all they do is stay in the room. They isolate. They don't take showers anymore. They're um, talking... When they talk, sometimes they talk about odd things. Like, there's, like, like conspiratorial things, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. If I look at their journals, Mm -hmm. sometimes... Mm -hmm. The journals just are like a hodgepodge of statements. They're, they're not writing clear paragraphs even. Yeah. Um, they, when they text, the texts don't always make sense. They accuse me of things like they never used to. And um, you know, they have their dietary patterns have changed. They only eat from cans or they have this odd sort of like demands on food. And so this is, of course, schizophrenia. It's chronically there, right? If it was bipolar, it would be intermittent and there would be a lack of sleep. But this is chronic progressive in nature and it's debilitating. So, yeah, there's a little intro and kind of intro into schizophrenia as well. But I want to I want to hit what you want to hit.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for that. I really appreciate you painting a picture and painting a story of what that could look like. Um, You know, obviously, there's like the more obvious uh, main presenting symptoms, but um, putting it into the context of what that could look like in a person's life is, is super helpful. And I think I do want to touch on that for starters, you know, like what is schizophrenia, you know, what are, you know, the signs and symptoms for someone who's maybe never seen it before, or they have a loved one and they think there might be something going on. What are like some of the main presenting uh, signs?
2: Yeah. So we think of schizophrenia as something that's um, progressive, potentially Even from the womb progressive, it does have genetic links so that if there are first degree relatives that have a history of psychosis or schizophrenia or just being super odd, there's a link sometimes to, you know, the kids having schizophrenia. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit higher if there's a lot of stress early in life. Um, So there's like an epigenetic phenomenon meaning like the genes are changing and the genes aren't it's not like a particular gene so it's no it's not like we can screen for like okay it's this one gene it's 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 more like 50 or 60 because it's a complex illness and um, there are things that are non-genetic that influence it like things like toxoplasmosis living in an urban environment birth seasonality exposure to influenza So those are, those are things that are very early on, you know, and there's like kind of a trajectory. So sometimes in adolescence, these kids are a little bit, uh, less relational is one thing. Like they could look even like a little bit autistic or maybe they don't, maybe they're just not interested in dating other dating people or, you know, human interactions, but sometimes they, they have, they've had a rich interpersonal life, um, in terms of onset, men tend to have it in their mid-twenties, whereas women in their late-twenties, early-thirties. So women have a little bit of a a more delayed onset. And if you go back to um, early studies on schizophrenia before antipsychotics, what happens? These patients according to Kreplin, according to a lot of different, like if you, if you read about the early asylums and the stuff like that, a lot of these patients became vegetative by their forties, vegetative as in like unreactive. Uh, another word to describe that is catatonia. They like, they're, they're not moving in a normal way or like early dementia. Some of the early people, you know, I had dementia actually in the word to describe what they were seeing. And you can still see this in the third world. When I spent time in Haiti, um, I noticed some of the patients had that more catatonic look to them because they just no no treatment. Um, and if you see homeless people, you know, some once in a while you'll see one who's like talking to himself or, you know, very internally preoccupied. Maybe they believe that they're the, the king of England or something. So they'll have this very fixed delusion that protects them in some way. Um, they'll have hallucinations. So they'll hear things mostly auditory. So, and mostly derogatory, and they're not going to want to tell you this. So if you ask them and you, they don't trust you, they're not going to tell you, but it's uh, the most common for men is that they're that they're gay the most common for females is that they're a slut or a whore and these are accusatory humiliating derogatory auditory hallucinations delusions are fixed false beliefs about 80 percent of people with schizophrenia will have those and they are both bizarre and non-bizarre and they can be linked to narratives in the culture as well so they can kind of adopt a ad- adopt, um, delusions. So maybe you'll have like one that, um, you know, has, has a delusion that they're mixed up with their church in some way. Like I am the next Mary Magdalene and I'm going to have a baby and it's, you know, or they could have a delusion like I am pregnant. Um, even though they're not pregnant. The delusions can be grandiose, meaning like that they feel like it it makes them to be amazing in some way. They can be paranoid. People are chasing me. Um, It can be someone's in love with me, like some famous person is in love with me. Uh, And then one of the more interesting symptoms that it's a little bit harder to notice unless you have some training is the disorganization or to to put words to it. So their speech they you know maybe you ask them a question and they just it's, it's called like tangential speech which means like they just keep going from one topic to another but never really arrive back to answer the question or circumstantial speech where then they finally after a long time arrive back at the answer or um they can create new idiosyncratic words you know they can have word salad so the words just you're like listening and it's like what what are they even saying i have no idea and um, sometimes there's a meaningless repetition of words. This is sometimes more of the severe, severe disorganization. Um, and then there's also cognitive impairment, and there's a decrease in processing. There's a change in the ability to have, you know, verbal learning and memory issues. So a lot of parents are like, you know, he was so bright before this. Like, what's happened? Um, some of the reasoning and executive functioning is gone, meaning their attention, focus, working memory, you know, how they move, like Sudoku might be harder, for example, or like video games might be harder. Um, and then often they'll have mood and anxiety issues. it's a higher prevalence of mood and anxiety issues as well. It's maybe not the first thing that happened. It could be the first thing that happened. I think this is where it gets a little bit hard to tease out what's going on. And then, you know, they do have a higher rate of suicidality. There's a five to 10% completion rate of suicidality. So there, there it is in a nutshell. I know that was a lot.
1: Yeah, (laughs) no, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, You know, obviously we talk a lot about, in context of the church and of faith, but of course, this applies to anyone. But again, this is one of those things where it's like, if you are seeing these things, you know, in your church, or someone is presenting these symptoms, there is something more going on um, that needs treatment, that needs expertise, that needs help, um, because this is a real thing. And and speaking of that, because I really like to pull out some of the more clinical and biological sides of these things um, for people to understand you know something that we talked a lot about when i was in school was things like the dopamine hypothesis when it came to some theoretical reasons behind which medications would like work for someone or help someone with schizophrenia can you speak to um, what could be taking place Uh, neurologically or biologically that is creating these symptoms for them, um, possibly the hallucinations and things like that. And that it's not just in their head or.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So first off, maybe I'll just comment globally about what I've seen inside of like churches with um, this diagnosis in particular. Some of the most humanitarian um, places to take the mentally ill were, religious organizations uh they would treat them with kindness and that you know that wasn't always the case in history you know like if you look back at the asylums they used to chain up people like this and um so there is a historical precedence uh for thinking that you know the parents must have done something really wrong to have led to this issue you know or there's some huge you know sin that led to this issue and and i think also inside the church you'll find p- parents who are more hesitant to take them and trust trust a psychiatrist and i get it i get it like it's like it's hard to wrap your brain around this issue and and specifically like you know meds do help right and then there's a lot of anti psychiatry people which can be hard to wade through a lot of it's tied to the church of scientology like if you look at the authors of it or there's a couple people who are making a lot of money off of spreading a lot of fear about psychiatry. Um, Or, you know, they'll show one study where like, look, we took people off of meds and they actually did better. But if you like really look at the study, you know, it's like they weren't choosing to take them off of meds. They were just watching a naturalistic study and people who needed less meds did better. Well, a lot of people get put on meds and then maybe we slowly titrate it down to see what happens and you know people who need less meds do better so it's a, it's a complicated issue but th- the data is pretty clear that if you take someone off of medication they there's like a 95 percent chance of relapse if they do truly have schizophrenia and five percent is probably like relapse not yet you know some people can go for a while without another relapse and so, part of um so so that's kind of the big picture of like in the church um there's a hesitancy and I have some empathy for it and and in different faith denominations, you may find a little bit of a twist in the content of the hallucinations as well, so I've treated um psychiatrists actually in Saudi Arabia, and in um, in in the Middle East, where, you know, 95% of the people are Muslim. And what they found is that a lot of the themes around schizophrenia have to do with Muhammad, have to do with things in their faith. And in the same way, in Christianity, if if the kid was saturated in Christian culture, or even if they weren't sometimes, the themes of the delusions can be and the hallucinations can have spiritual components. Um, so, okay, that all said, now I'll answer your question. There are brain changes, and um, there are tons of studies to look at what happens in the brain. Um, there's specifically different parts of the brain that decrease in size. And so you over time, you'll get like ventricles, that are a little bit like it's the air, it's the, um, the area where the fluid that circles around the brain, those ventricles will look larger, um, as, as a person progresses in schizophrenia. And, um, so there's a sh- a, like a global shrinking and then there's specific parts of the brain, um, where there's reduced gray matter and white matter. Like the temporal lobe has volume reduction, um I, I could list off all these brain things I'm, I'm not sure anyone would really care to know but um so i'd there love are... to know i'd love to hear oh really <laughs> yes okay. let's go there <laughs> okay so um so there's anomalies in this superior temporal gyrus and temporal and frontal lobe and you know the white matter connections have decreased in these different areas and so um yeah, I mean there's lots of and that some of that has to do with like earlier I talked about working memory how that's decreased. Well, there's actual brain you know, shrinkage which is part of that. And the more a person is untreated, we believe the more there's there's damage. Um so what the dopamine hypothesis. You know, they found out that uh, a, a dopamine blocker, like a d two blocker, a receptor blocker, was helpful and if you were to go like eighty years ago b- before these before these meds, there were a lot more chronically schizophrenic patients who were in asylums, and they largely got rid of these asylums after antipsychotics came out because now they could live at home with their families. And some, some patients with schizophrenia can do really well. Like I have one patient in particular, who's like in a graduate school, a dual graduate school, um, who was homeless. So he was truly schizophrenic two year, you know, homeless, schizophrenic, and now he's in graduate school. So if maintained on medications long-term in a very stabilized way, the patients can do better. I say better because not all, will be at that level right um so okay so there's this this thought of like you have these this limbic area so you have like th- three main dopamine tracks there's the nigrostriatal mesolimbic mesocortical the the mesolimbic is like a dopamine track that goes into the limbic system and this is where it's thought that if you hit it with dopamine, you stop some of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, the hallucinations, the delusions. Now, it takes, I would say, weeks for the hallucinations to decrease and months, three to f- three to six months, for the delusions to decrease. And um, once you start having them on a dopamine blocker um you also have this uh mesocortical system which we think of as so we think of this uh, the mesolimbic as like hyperactive dopamine that we want to block the mesocortical is actually hypoactive dopamine and so this is where you get some of the cognitive issues which are harder to treat very very hard to treat um cognitive issues of working memory of ability to focus concentrate okay so so yeah there's a a little bit there um you know we could talk about what types of dopamine receptors like in the mesolimbic tract it's the d2 receptors in the the, in the um, mesocortical tract it's like d1 receptors like the prefrontal cortex. So sl- slightly different type of dopamine receptors. Um, which is why sometimes with more newer treatments, maybe that have a mixture of dopamine things, you might have a little bit of alleviation of the cognitive symptoms, like with something like, uh, like air you know, and so here's here's one thing that complicates it, is that for treatment-resistant schizophrenia, like let's say someone has tried three different antipsychotics. None of them have worked. The chance of the fourth one working of a normal antipsychotic is like 5%. If they've been adequately dosed, too. So we're talking about blood levels that actually have shown, like, this is adequate dosage. They're not just cheeking the medication and spitting it out. Okay. 60, but in that treatment resistant, there's, there's a medication called clozapine. It's a relatively cheap medication. That's it has like 60% efficacy. So I have a couple patients on cl- clozapine, and it it can work wonders. Um, it does not impact the dopamine system; it actually increases glutamate. So it's a different mechanism, but it works really, really well. And so there is. A little bit of um, some nuance and you know as we think about like the biological piece uh, but it's it's fun to see someone who has really struggled and then you put them on clozapine and it's like it, it's like it can be like the lights are on and so if you are a parent listening to this and your kid has struggled with schizophrenia um, you know there, there may be options. Number one, increase the med that he's on to a place, you know, and get blood levels to make sure it's like the highest possible. And in my podcast, psychiatrypodcast.com, I have like episode on blood levels and explaining how we measure antipsychotic blood levels, which not every psychiatrist knows about. Unfortunately, not every psychiatrist practices that way. The, and I'll, I'll also mention the problem with clozapine is that you have to do weekly blood checks for so many months to to make sure they don't have like a, a lowering of their neutrophil count. It's a very rare issue, but it does occasionally happen and if we watch it, we can stop the med before it causes issues. So, it's it's like if you have a very treatment resistant person. Good luck trying to get them on weekly blood checks. Like it's just really really hard. Um and and then the other big treatment is injection versus oral. And so injection medications have been more successful in treating schizophrenia. Why? Because of the high noncompliance. And so a lot of my patients that refuse treatment, you know, if I can convince them to get a once, once a month injection, it's totally life changing. So um, the hardest part of all of this is not the psychopharmacology. It's not the diagnosis. The hardest part of this is to build the trust where they will actually take the medication and where they will actually follow through and where you have the parents like 100% buy-in. Because if if one parent is like, no, I think he's fine, he's just quiet, he's just introspective, he's just... Wants to do his thing. It's like, and they don't see how dysfunctional the kid is. Like, no, this kid is not showering. They don't write anymore. You know, they mutter to themselves. They're responding to internal stimuli, which means they're responding to something in their environment Mm -hmm. that is not there. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going on and on. So t- tell me no, what else I, you want me to pull out of this.
1: I really appreciate you sharing all of this because I know that for me this was really fascinating um, when I was studying about schizophrenia. But also, I was a part of a lab, CAPS lab at UCLA with Carrie Beard, Dr. Carrie Bearden, and actually, what she was in like a full multi-site study where we were trying to basically find what could be the risk factors for someone going on to develop schizophrenia um, and it was just like campuses from like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, UCLA. It was Mm -hmm. super cool that I got to be a part of this Um, also and it was in young adults so those who hadn't gone on to be diagnosed with schizophrenia but was starting to show the signs. We did like blood work, brain scans, like everything um, to see if there might be any connections and I think for me, especially coming from a faith background, learning about the biological sides of schizophrenia, learning about these connections really opened up my mind, which is also kind of why I wanted to have this conversation because, you know, I think that when it comes to faith and spirituality, and maybe this is kind of controversial or hot topic, it's like, oh, if someone is experiencing this, it must be a demon, it must be demonic. They automatically get demonized. And, you know... I'm, I'm not, um, I believe in the spiritual, but it's really interesting to see how there are these neurological brain changes in the brain, um, these neurological differences in the neurochemicals, um, and that when you can treat some of these areas that some of these symptoms go away or they, um, they're much lower. And so it shows that, there is something physical that's going on that can contribute. I think it's really strange for people to wrap their head around that something physical can create these non-physical um, symptoms like of hallucinations, of um, hearing voices or seeing things. And so they automatically attribute it to something else that's non-physical or metaphysical Um like the spiritual, you know, or Mm -hmm. there might be some examples in scripture. um, But I think it's worthwhile to at least open up the conversation and open up to the idea that um, there are these biological attributes and that they can also be treated biologically and help people live functional lives or not have to um, deal with these aspects.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, you could think about like how we didn't really have words for a lot of these things, like even in the Egyptian times, like there, there was a, a lot of writing about mental illness. and they, they, A lot of times they didn't really have words to describe it. And so I think people have grasped over the, over the millennia for words to describe different mental illnesses and, and, and how to help it. Um, you know, how, and what we know now is very different than our perspective, like pre you know, MRI and pre PET scan and pre medications. And um, I think the best people pre science were the people who were listening empathically to these people, gentle, non-confrontatory, and would sit with them with kindness and not lock them up, but feed them well. Um, Probably the best practices were some of those things, you know, just just treating them like humans with dignity yeah. and respect and actually um the therapy that i do for these patients is to try to reconnect them to who they were before and their mm-hmm. desires and their yearnings and their passions and increase their insight into the illness as well um you know the it's it's interesting because the person before is still there but yeah. it's like there's this cloud of the of the biology and the, um, of the the impact of, yeah, you know, the the disease state on the mind, but um, with good treatment, hopefully we get them back. Somewhat, you know, where you you can see kind of like that person before, and the the personality may be similar actually, but maybe slightly different depending on how many years of the barrage of the illness they've had, you know? And that's the sad thing is like when it's untreated for decades, it's right. like that is a damaged brain. And um, so, okay. If you were, let me kind of summarize like my take takeaway points. Like if you're a spiritual person, you're listening to this and you know, someone who's suffering from this and it's like, what can you do? Well, um, you can try to get them treatment. You can try to get them, you you can, um, if, if you do kind of hit the last resort and they will not go into treatment after many attempts and they are ag- aggressive or, you know, in general, people with schizophrenia will not be that much more aggressive than the general population. That was actually one of my, one of your questions was like, what is a
1: myth Yeah, pet
2: peeve or a myth, right? It's yeah. like, um, only about 5% of violent acts that occur emanate out of a mental illness or mm-hmm. caused by a mental illness. So it's not like, it's a myth that the mentally ill are more violent. So we don't nice. need to be afraid of these of these people. You know. Thank you. That being said, if someone is being violent, you call the police and you, if, if you feel like you are in danger for yourself, they're in danger to themselves, they can't take care of their food, clothing and shelter, we have a pathway to get them admitted to a psychiatric hospital. If, and I always recommend get the psychiatric hospital detailed notes of what you have observed. Maybe they can't reach out to you because there's confidentiality, but you can always give them, like, hey, this is what we've observed. Here's pictures of the texts. Here's here's what here's what the, the progression of things in a succinct, you know, two-page letter. So it's readable. Not like twenty or thirty pages, please. Um, but as succinct as possible, and then, you know, kind of ask, is it possible that we start him on an injection while he's in that psychiatric hospital? And then even the worst case scenario, he needs to be hospitalized or she needs to be hospitalized like once a month to get that injection. And slowly, the insight will start to come back, hopefully with the treatment. Um, so I think more knowledge is better. So the more you can equip yourself. And on my podcast, I have on psychiatrypodcast.com, I have about 10 episodes on schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So if you are listening to this and you're like, I need to learn more about this, you probably do. And not only do I have medic I, like I just did an episode on long acting injectables, and it's for mental health professionals. So this is like as detailed as a mental health professional would would learn it. Um I have other ones on like the history of it, okay. and other ones on like with Doctor Cummings, who's like one of the best psychopharmacologists in the world. Mm. And he's breaking he's breaking down aspects of schizophrenia and treatment resistance, schizophrenia and violence, mm-hmm. and schizophrenia. So, um, akesthesia side effect of medications. We talk about that catatonia. Like so what what happens when someone gets catatonic? How we uniquely treat them in that situation? Yeah. So, I think if it, I think the more knowledge, the better. Mm-hmm. And also for yourself, if you're a parent. Get your own personal work to decrease your own range of emotional affect. Yeah. Because if you are incredibly angry or upset around them, they feel that and it kind of makes their psychotic process worse. So the more calm you can be, the better. So a lot of times I'll send the parents, hey, I think you should, I I think you would benefit from seeing, you know, a marriage therapist and just talking talking with your wife to the marriage therapist about how hard this has been, you know, yep. or if, you know, talk to your pastor and get some empathy and, you know, whoever that person is that can help you guys yeah. get into the most calm space that you can be in. Thank
1: you. Yeah, support not just for the one who's going through the condition, but also for the loved ones around them who are supporting them, that can take a toll too. So that's exactly why we have David on the podcast. We're going to link his podcast in the show notes. He has a ton of information there as well as his social media links so you guys can stay connected. Thanks so much, David, for joining us again. Um, Can't appreciate your insight enough. And thank you guys for listening. Until next time. Thank you.